This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The best career advice that you are not getting is to invest. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your In Good Company, a podcast for like-minded people who want to make smart investment decisions. I'm Maddie and I'm here with my good friend Sophie. Hello Maddie. The chat we are going to have today is very insightful, but before we start today's episode, we'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of this land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders, past and present, and to the next generation who we hope to create a different future for. So, so if you said that this episode is going to be very insightful, what do we have in store for today? Well, today we are going to be tackling the numbers. The scary numbers. Yes, the scary (laughs) numbers, but not too scary. A little bit scary. Hopefully it won't be scary after the episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I guess one of the harder things um, I know I've definitely found when you get started investing is that it's really hard to know what to look for in a company, which makes it either a good or bad investment decision. There's a lot of micro factors that influence a company's growth and, you know, where it's headed in the future. Like there's endless things that you can look when you're sort of researching um, a company. So you can look at things like the company's financial metrics, such as whether it's profitable. You can look at what its customers look like, who's running the company. But I think what I've sort of found and from what I've gathered from all the conversations that we've had with different people is that every investor sort of develops their own philosophy for what they consider to be really important for them. Mm, When I've listened to like podcasts or I've read articles that are written by everyday investors, they tend to focus in on like three or four things that they find really important. And that's how they kind of pick their companies um, through comparing those specific metrics. Yeah. So last week we looked at more of a sort of top-down approach. So looking at the bigger picture in the world and in society of the economics and how this sort of affects financial markets and investing. So today we're going to be looking at the bottom-up approach to investing. So this is where you look and focus on the fundamentals of the company, i.e. those scary numbers. Scary numbers. So that we can begin to learn about why these numbers can be important and how they can impact your decisions. To guide us through the bottom-up approach today, we are joined by the lovely Candice Burke. Candice is a senior investment advisor at Shaw & Partners and is the co-founder of Her Financial Network, which aims to empower women to make more informed financial decisions. Candice spends her days translating the numbers, so we think she is the perfect person to have with us today. Welcome, Candice. Thank you very much, ladies. I'm excited to be here. We are so glad to have you here. So, Candice, we have had an overwhelming amount of people wanting to understand the numbers that make up a company and I guess sort of just how to understand these. But before we get into this area of your expertise, we always ask our guests the same questions to get to know them. So, Candice, what is your morning routine? Well, my morning routine is um, I typically take my puppy and my nine-month-old black lab for a little walk. 
Oh. So he can be nice and relaxed in the morning and I can work. Um, What's his name? Get all the en- his name's Cooper oh. and he's, name. he's a lab, so he's got lots of energy. So we typically go for a walk in the morning. Um, and when I'm not focusing on him, I always go everywhere with my phone, right? We all rely on our phones. And I've got all these amazing apps on there. So I'm typically scanning what happened overnight in the U.S., in Europe, just digesting as much news as I possibly can. Um, I'll look through like a, a few of my favorite apps, which is Bloomberg, yeah. see what's going on there, see what my stocks have done overnight, scan emails. So really, although I'm multitasking, I'm kind of getting ready for the day, like because there's a lot of information that you can digest before 9 a.m. and then head back home, have breakfast, normal things, shower, and then my day starts for work. And typically um, it's it's sort of like another hour or two of just reading what's going on with the markets, checking emails, and um, then the market opens at 10 and it's off to the races. And then the day starts. <laughs> Lovely. Now our second question is who or what influenced you to invest? I think when I was reflecting on this the other day, I would say that my parents played a really major role. I remember getting pocket money at a young age, like five or six, and really understanding the value of even a single dollar. So sometimes I'd save it up and at the each, end of each week, go to the local cafeteria or canteen and buy something. And other weeks I would just spend it straight away. So that sort of young age, it was embedded in me to understand the value of time and money. And then when I got my first job packing fruit, I think I was 15 or 16, I remember getting paid cash and I got a lot less than the other colleagues. And I thought to myself, well, hang on, what's going on here? Um, so I asked the question. And so I think from a young age, I really understood the values of asking financial questions if things aren't adding up in your mind. Um, and then after after school, I had a year off before uni. And at 18, I started my first business. And that was a whole new world of really learning on the ground the quickest way to learn is to just jump into an area you've got no idea about. And luckily, the cafe that I opened when I was 18 at Newcastle Uni is still operating today. So that's fantastic. But I think I would say I was self-taught a lot of these things. Nice. And Candace, final question to get us started. In one minute or less, if you were a stock or a company, who would you be and why? I love this question. I think I would have to be a global <laughs> company because I love to travel. And it's just killing me slowly that we can't with, with COVID. <laughs> oh, I know. If you could go anywhere right now, where would you go? <laughs> I'm a massive skier, so I'd be on the plane yeah. to Canada within a moment. Oh, um, so I'd definitely be a global company. And I think uh, a lot of friends describe me as being very young and playful at heart, but then I can turn a switch on and be very kind of wise and offer these really insightful bits of advice. So I think I'd be Walt Disney or Disney on the um, New York Stock Exchange oh, because that. it's been around for like, you know, generations and it's just completely reinvented itself as consumer trends have changed um and who doesn't want to work at disney yeah that would be a lot of fun (laughs) have you read ride of a lifetime the bob Iger book no i haven't oh it's such a good book recommendation for everyone listening uh bob Iger, the ceo or i think maybe xe of disney wrote a book and it's awesome okay i'll have to add that to my read list for sure (laughs) So, Candice, to kick off with our kind of topic today, we're going to be speaking about understanding um, the numbers a little bit behind uh, the companies and the investments that we make. 
So we're going to start with a pretty broad question. How would you define a good company? Yeah, the definition of a good company, it really depends on what aspect of the business that you're looking at. So for example, does the company have a strong leadership and management team? Is the company profitable? Does it make a good long-term investment? Is the company investing in the future of society, our environment and human capital you know, issues? Has the company been involved in a public scandal? Mm. So there's many, many ways and lenses to look through and assess, is this a good company? So what I typically ask my investors are a series of really simple questions because it's going to unpack your version of what a good company is and help you determine if that's a good investment for you long term. So typically, you need to ask yourself, do we really understand the business and how it makes money? Right? McDonald's sell burgers. We get that. That's simple. When you get into more complex businesses, there's more revenue streams, there's multi-layers that you've got to unpack there. So then second question, can you see this business surviving in the next 10 to 20 years? The answer is yes. Well, then that's, that's great. Right? That, that's going to take you to the next series of investment decisions. Because why would you buy a house or a share in a company knowing that it's not going to be around for the next five years? And then you need to think, okay, so what positive or negative impact is the company having? What are the competitors? Who are they, if any? Or what are the future competitors? And what is the company's outlook, perspective on risk and general investment metrics telling us as an investor? Once you start to ask these questions to yourself, start reading about the company more, you're able to determine, okay, is this a good fit and a good investment for my portfolio? There's no real simple answer to that question. There's multiple layers and aspects you've got to consider. And Sophie's version of a good company will be very different to my version of a good company. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think for everyone, and this is sort of why we wanted to delve into this topic today and something that we really want to keep in mind is And this is a little bit frustrating, but there really are sort of no perfect numbers and it really does depend on each person's sort of risk appetite and things like that. And I guess you mentioned metrics in there and I want to dive into that a little bit more in a second, but I think I kind of want to preface it by saying that for me, I, when I'm looking into buying stocks, I've actually never really been into a financial report and looked at the different ratios. And if you can, and you want to do that, that's absolutely great. But I think the reason why we want to sort of delve into these a little bit more today is because it can be really beneficial to sort of understand what these terms mean so that when you're reading an article or when you're reading an analyst report about a stock that you're interested in, you can actually understand what that means and you can see sort of how it relates to your risk appetite. So I just sort of wanted to say before we go any deeper, we're not necessarily doing this episode so that you start reading financial reports and you start looking at all these numbers. It's just more to get sort of that general understanding. On that, financial metrics, what are some of the, I guess, sort of key metrics, Candice, that you look at when you're assessing a company? Maybe we can start around sort of profitability or? Definitely. Yeah. So for your listeners, it's really, and anyone listening and, you know, just general investors, you don't have to be Einstein to invest in shares, right? You just need to simply, if we go back to that earlier comment, really break down and we call it keep it simple, stupid. Excuse my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so if you really if you really break it down to what the business does, how they make money, are they profitable? So finance can have a lot of scary jargons and nobody can sort of go, oh, everyone yes. at one point goes, oh, that's that's scary. 
So you're going to hear words like EBITDA, ROE, ROI, net debt, PE, EPS. That sounds like a different language. I'm freaking out already. (laughs) (laughs) Don't freak out. (laughs) So if you simply just think about it, take a step back, think about it from your own personal finances, right? We all have assets, cars, iPhones, houses, jewelry, etc. We all have liabilities, credit card debt, car loan finance. You owe a friendly neighbor down the road $5 because <laughs> you bought your cake one time. Right? And we, yeah, hex debt, exactly. So the list goes on. So we all understand the basics of a balance sheet to some perspective because we all run our own balance sheet at home. And we have income coming in every month because we're working. We have expenses coming out every month because we live our lives. And then we come up with a deficit or a surplus. And that's the exact same as a business when you look at their balance sheet. And often it looks very dwelling and overwhelming, but you really just look for that word at the bottom, revenue and profitability. And so when you see the word EBITDA, that stands for earnings before income tax adjusted. So really that's saying how much money are they making after everything? And that's their profitability in a sense. And then you can have all these other metrics to work out actually how profitable are they and you can compare that to the peers within their sectors and their industry. And then you start to get a list of preferred metrics that you're comfortable with and that could be your filter where you start going looking for investments. So I'll give you an example. I typically invest in more mid to more growth mature businesses. So They're not at the beginning of their life cycle. They're not highly investing in uh, the growth of the business. Like they're sort of maybe more five years down the track. They're sort of more rinsing and repeating and moving along with their business. Um, And therefore, they probably have a stronger balance sheet than the beginners. They probably have a few years of profitability. So they're actually positively making a profit. And typically, I look for companies, particularly in this environment, that aren't too leveraged, aka don't have too much debt. Because we're living in a very uncertain world with COVID. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's all hanging on the balance of the vaccine rollout and how successful or not that will be. And so personally, for me, my finances, I'm thinking, well, maybe for the next 12 months, it's very uncertain, could be very volatile. So I'm making sure I have plenty of net free cash flow on my personal balance sheet at home. And I want to see that for my businesses that I'm investing, whether it's for myself or for my clients, because we go through a third or fourth pandemic, businesses that have too much debt could simply blow up and you'll have the GFC kind of again. And effectively the GFC, a lot of companies got caught out unexpectedly in the wrong position, too leveraged, too high risk, and the world, you know, Took a, took a turn for the worst. I really hope we don't have a third or fourth pandemic. <laughs> so do I. Fingers crossed. Look, and I think we're doing a great job so far, and particularly in Australia. I don't know what it feels like in Melbourne, uh, but here in Sydney, it definitely feels like we're behind COVID here in Australia. It's interesting that you speak about cash flow because I've I've been reading a lot about um, cash flow in just some of the newspapers that I read in the morning and how at the moment, it's really good to be looking at companies that kind of do have 
a bit of cash flow so that they can service their debt if, you know, everything kind of turns to crap. Excuse my French also. (laughs) So I was wondering if you could maybe, you know, define cash flow and, I mean, touch on if you can any more about why cash flow is really important. Yeah, I mean, you've pretty much answered the question um, in in the sense that if you cast your mind back to March, April last year, the market fell off 45% in a matter of three weeks. And earlier you said, what did I do every morning as my routine? Well, during the COVID crash, I, I didn't have my puppy back then, so I wasn't walking as much in the mornings to keep him calm. But I remember spending more and more time just absorbing the news and thinking, oh, this is going to be another bad day. We're going to be 10% down again today. And so during that crash, we we came off 45%. And companies that were clever, that had really strong management, that had weather a stormed before, they went to the market and they raised equity. So they might have had 40% debt to net ratio before COVID. They thought that's feeling a bit tight, that's feeling a bit constricted. So they raised more shares, more equity on the market. So us as investors could participate if we wanted to, to buy more shares. And it helped buffer out their balance sheet. So they're reducing debt. They're giving themselves more breathing room, more free cash flow and net cash flow in their back pocket for whatever purposes that they needed to ride out the COVID wave. That's very typical that businesses will either blow up and go under or move quickly to move with a situation that we had last March, April. And then obviously 2020 hindsight is beautiful. By the time we kind of reached end of March, early April, we'd bottomed out at that point. We didn't know it at that point. And then it was back to the races again, and we recovered very quickly. (laughs) So that's where it proves to another, looking at the metrics aside, another area that I focus on for my investors is let's get to know the board. Let's get to know the management. How long have they been invested in the company? Are they original founders? Do they used to work there originally or have they been skyrocketed in as the celebrity factor? How much equity have they got themselves? What's their behavioral finance traits like during the crash? AKA, are they selling? Are they buying more? And you start to understand who these people are as investors themselves. Because as a shareholder, it's like Margaret Thatcher's theory. You're all in the boat together and you want to rise on the tide together. And it's called the drag and tag along effect. So if the CEO or the board member has 10% equity in the business, well, he or she's vested interest is to make more money at the end of the day because the equity is going to go up. So you're dragging and tagging along with that major shareholder as a small investor because you might have five shares, for example. So cash flow is important, but it's not the main thing. I think you need to look at the business overall, how they're making money, understand that, like we said earlier, the board, what's their mentality like, and then start to break down the balance sheet and the profit and loss. I think everyone has their own personal investing style and they look at certain, as we've already said, certain things um, to make their investment decisions. And for me, looking at management is one of the 
the biggest ones, as as you said as well, if they own anything in the business. And then also if they're selling out of the business, questioning, okay, why are they selling out of the business and should I be selling as well? I think it's a really interesting area to be looking at and looking at their career paths and how they want to transform the business in the future, because that can usually correlate to where the business is going to grow. Don't get me wrong, board members and CEOs and management, they're also people at the end of the day. So it's in their right to to, to sell shares, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't believe in the business. But for we know, they're paying down their own personal debt. They're buying another property. You know, they are moving overseas, whatever it may be. So we can't punish major shareholders for selling. It's just if you understand it and if it makes sense and it's at the right time. So, for example, if a company's just reported a massive loss and they're sort of saying, look, Sales and earnings are down because of X, Y, Z reasons, but still believe in us. We're going to raise equity because we still have all these growth ideas coming around the corner. And then the CEO sells. That's a red flag for me or some important shareholder sells. So I'd be like, okay, again, when I got paid cash for my fruit job, start to think, okay, there's a question here. Let's go digging for it. And can I just ask quickly, what do you mean when you say let's raise equity or the company's raising equity? So when you buy shares, if we break it down to the simple answer, when you buy shares, you're buying a proportion, aka a share in a listed company. So there is, I used the example Disney earlier, there's about 1.1 million Disney shares currently on offer. So if they were to raise more equity, they can simply issue more shares. So then there'll be more shares on offer. And then the share part is important because it helps you determine a lot of other metrics. So Disney's around $184 at the moment in the US trading on the Wall Street market. You times the price per share times the amount of shares on offer. And that's how you get the market cap. So 1.8 million shares by the share price of Disney gives you about 335 million market cap. That sounds pretty big, right? And so, and I think that is classified as a big cap. (laughs) That's pretty big. (laughs) And it is pretty big because there's some businesses that are 5 million, 10 million. And so then you can have micro cap, small cap, mid cap, Large cap, mega caps. Mega caps are like Amazon, Google. So I would put Disney in that large cap category. And that's going to help you understand, okay, what's the other comparables to Disney? Well, you could argue it's Netflix. What's the market cap of Netflix? Is it more or less? Okay, why is that? Why is Disney potentially worth more or less than Netflix? How much debt has Disney got? How much debt has Netflix got? And you start to compare apples for apples. Mm -hmm in the same sector. And then you go, okay, well, for me, I like less risk. So I might look for a company that has less debt, for example. That's one aspect you could look at. Yeah. So that was actually a really common question that we've been getting from our community, taking it a little bit back, sorry, but maybe we can define what a market cap is. And then we were asked a lot, you know, how can you actually understand what the value of a stock is? Why can you buy some stocks for 50 cents a share, but then why, you know, in the case of Amazon, are you buying one single stock for, you know, you know, three, 3,500 US dollars? Yeah. 
the market, if you were to, as a first-time investor, I think one of the first metrics to understand is probably the market cap because it's an important metric for us to understand regardless if the company is good or not, in your opinion, where does it sit on the right risk scale that you're comfortable investing in? So generally speaking, market cap corresponds to a company's stage in the business cycle. So typically your smaller caps are your high growth. They're aggressively reinvesting. They're probably not turning over a profit yet. They're thinking five, 10 year expansion mode. And you typically will have less shareholders on offer because maybe they've been around less, um, they've been listed on the market less versus the Disney. And so then you might have less liquidity on offer. Liquidity is a fancy word for buying and selling. When you go to a house auction and there's, you know, 10 bidders to buy the place, then that's a lot of liquidity versus you might just be the only person there. So. It's the same with the share market. When you're going out and you're wanting to buy five shares in BHP, for example, you need to have a seller because you're the buyer and you need to agree a price that you're willing to pay to buy BHP shares and that seller will match at your same price. Now, you can either be in, you can either say, well, I just don't care about the price. I want to buy it today. So that's typically a market order. Or you can put a limit order in and say, no, I only want to pay, you know, $49.22 for BHP. So that's you setting your price to purchase that asset. So the market cap, and to answer your question, you can then look at a few other metrics like the enterprise value. And that equa- that's an equation that determines a more comprehensive market value of a company because you're actually considering the company's short-term and long-term debts. You're looking at the cash on the balance sheet and you're stripping back the risks associated with the business. So it's a more comprehensive metric. And you can find these by going on Yahoo Finance. Like Yahoo Finance is one of the greatest tools that I use daily. There's a second tab, I think it is, or a third tab across where it says statistics. You can see market value, enterprise value, PE ratio, ROA, ROE, profitability, etc. So, if we use two real life examples that I think a lot of investors are familiar with, it would be Afterpay and Zip Money. Right, we both understand those buy now, pay later companies. They have a very different share price and a very different market value. But really, they're very similar businesses and they're direct competitors to each other. So currently, there's 200 and something, I think it's about 250,000 afterpay shares on offer. The prices are over 100 bucks. So you get a market cap of roughly 32 million. Versus Zip, there's actually 500 or so thousand. I think it's 550,000 shares on offer. So there's more. The price is less, $7. So you get a market cap of 4.3 million. So now you're thinking, okay, why is there more shares at value for Zip for a lower price? Surely Zip is a less attractive investment. Well, the answer is not necessarily so simple because it comes back to the reasons of why you're investing and what are your goals. So you know that like with Afterpay, it's been long further along the business cycle. 
So perhaps it's had longer time to penetrate, and we know that for a fact, it's had a longer time to penetrate the international markets. It's had longer time to get their product across different areas of the market, different peer groups. So then you could argue, well, Zip actually has more of a runway and more growth. And, you know, I might be willing to buy Zip because it's a cheaper share price and a cheaper market value because I can see the runway of coming second place, hopefully becoming the new afterpay eventually. And this is not financial advice. It's just a good example of two like-for-like businesses that if you're going to invest in that sector, you can compare apples for apples and explains why one's over 100 and one's less than $10. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Thank you very much. Very relatable for a lot of people listening probably. (laughs) So we are going to take a quick break for our sponsors and we'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So Candice, each episode we have been asking our guests to add a stock, company, news, trend or industry to our watch list. The purpose of this is to get us thinking outside the box and broaden our horizons in the investing space. But we are not financial advisors and this is purely for educational purposes and absolutely does not constitute financial advice. So Candice, what are you bringing to the watch list today? Well, I thought it would be fun if I talk about a business idea so a stock, um, give you a description. You guys can kind of guess to see where oh I'm going. Oh gosh, with no, it. Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No um, pressure. No right or wrong answer, right? So I've been doing a lot of research lately and I've been thinking five, 10 years, you know, where in the market is there opportunity? Where should we as investors and consumers be looking geographically? Like, you know, is there going to be a major shift in superpower? I think the answer is yes. So this company I found, it's a well-known household brand. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has enjoyed and eaten their product at some point in their life. The business has a market cap of $260 billion, so let's call it a mega cap, and operates over 10,000 restaurant food brands in over 1,400 cities located in China. Behind Alibaba, this company is the third most downloaded app and delivery service. The metrics are looking outstanding, PE multiple of 27 times. So that's pretty cheap, in my opinion, for a massive company like this. The company has a profit margin of 10.5%, ROE, so return of equity of 20%, EBITDA positive of 1.4 billion, no debt on the balance sheet, plenty of free cash flow to weather any storm that's coming. This company is literally eating up 
the Chinese middle growing class economy. So the GDP of China is expected to grow by 8.5% this year. So if you haven't kind of guessed it already. I just Googled Chinese restaurant delivery service <laughs> to try and find out yeah, what it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if you, if you haven't guessed already, I'm talking about KFC, which is called Yum China. Oh. And it's located, <laughs> it's located obviously in China. Um, and they operate KFC as their main uh, franchise restaurant food chain. They also have Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, basically a lot of Western style food brought to the Chinese market. And I was really shocked at how amazing these metrics are when I started to pull back the layers of this company. And one thing that I do as an investment advisor, my role at Shaw & Partners is to scan the whole universe, right? There's so many stocks and investment opportunities out there. And don't judge a book by its cover. So I have these great tools at work where I can literally run filters. So I'm looking at profitability. I'm looking at balance sheets. I'm screening for the metrics that I want. And then it reveals the company. And then I'm blown away that these well-known businesses are really fantastic investments at the end of the day as well. So, you know, the company reported massive earnings boosts thanks to COVID, up 35% across all their chains. And when I was visiting South Korea about three, four years ago, because I love to ski, so I tend to travel and, and go find the best pal, it's really incredible how the Asian culture will literally just stop you on the street to say, excuse me, politely, can I practice my English? I love the Western culture. So I think these brands, whether it's Starbucks, Disney, literally KFC chicken, they just love it. They want to immerse. They want to have that $5.99 Western experience. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. I will definitely be keeping my eye on that one and did not know that information. So that's a great addition to our watch list. And Candice, our final question, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self when you first started out investing? Have more conviction in yourself. Stick to your plan and be patient. And don't be afraid to ask questions. That's one of the reasons why I co founded Her Financial Network, because particularly as women, I think stereotypically we feel a bit embarrassed or ashamed or nervous to ask questions when it comes about your finances and your investments. And that should not be the case, in my opinion. So I would tell my younger self to not second doubt myself uh, and just keep learning, right? And because that's how you become more empowered and then you make better educated decisions, not only investment decisions, but just life decisions in general. So if there's any young people out there, I encourage you to jump on her financial website or the Instagram page. We're constantly putting up new content that's relevant, helpful, and insightful. And breaking down a lot of the jargons that we spoke about today, like what is a share? How do you invest? What does it mean to have a portfolio? Well, Candice, thank you so much for joining us today. You have been absolutely fantastic at starting to help us to understand what a profit and loss statement is, what a balance sheet is, and how we can start to sort of have a look at some of these financial metrics and really use them to start making investment decisions. So thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We would love you to take a screenshot of the episode or a photo of where you're listening of the pod today 
and share it to your Instagram and tag us at YIGC Podcast. You can also find us as always on Facebook at YIGC Investing Podcast Discussion Group where you can post questions or share your ideas. Or just copy off other people's ideas. (laughs) (laughs) And if you haven't already, we would love you to follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review. Until next time. You're in good company is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of You're In Good Company are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Your In Good Company acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 